to the In Transit podcast, a place where we discuss all things supply chain. I'm your host, Vishnu Rajamanikin. In this episode, we are joined by Kerem Kafuri, the founder and president of import and export firm Tartless Network, to discuss the growing relevance of nearshoring and reshoring within procurement operations. Global sourcing operations have been in a heightened sense of flux over the last few years thanks to policy changes and geopolitical issues that have seen the world embroiled in conflict across key trade regions. In this context, nearshoring is attractive because it allows procurement managers to diversify risk and avoid many of the transport problems that come with getting products from distant places. Kerim and I will dig into the nuances of making nearshoring work, the challenges with decoupling existing vendors and sourcing regions, and the steps companies need to follow to stay resilient during the transition process. Kerim also adds his thoughts on what pushes companies to diversify sourcing operations and what will pan out in these increasingly uncertain times. So buckle up and let's get started. Hey, Karim. Welcome to the In Transit podcast. Hey, Vishnu. How are you? Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on the show today. Excited to have you here, Karim. Um, let's start with an introduction around your journey with founding the Atlas Network and what the company does within the supply chain industry. Absolutely. Uh, my company is called the Atlas Network. It was founded in 2005 uh, with the basic goal of helping customers, small, medium businesses avoid the pitfalls of global sourcing, mass production, quality control, oversight. Essentially, we are a global supply chain solutions company um, for, again, small to mid-sized businesses that uh, don't necessarily have the in-house resources to facilitate uh, this kind of global landscape of business. Um, and we have been working at this for almost 20 years and, you know, have seen millions of products, uh, worked with thousands of clients and uh, continue to do a good job making supply chains more efficient for our customers. Brilliant. Now, I distinctly remember that nearshoring as a concept was kind of made popular during the Trump presidency when trade tariffs kicked in against China, which led to this tit-for-tat measures that resulted in a full-blown trade war, right? And when you look at it, it was also the time when U.S. companies had a lot invested in China for a majority of their sourcing and manufacturing needs. I think we've come quite a long way since those tariff wars, but the pandemic and geopolitical events that followed have kind of led companies to think seriously of reshoring or nearshoring. What are your thoughts here, Karen? While these are obviously macroeconomic factors at play, how does a procurement manager in a U.S. firm react to such changes? Well, I mean, I believe the reality is that anytime you can bring things nearer, it would seem, you know, like the most logical step to do so. But it's always very important to ask at what cost and with what trade-offs. Uh, as we know, labor rates may drastically make nearshoring options potentially uh, obsolete. Um, it really just depends upon where you are located or what kind of product you're trying to do. And even when shipping times or potential transit costs are reduced, 
Um, you know, more importantly, do you have the technical skills, you know, and or the manpower to facilitate particular productions in the nearer uh, location rather than being further away? So really, it comes down to being very much of a product to product question. And it's an analysis, really a cost benefit analysis that has to be performed by any procurement team. You know, can you get a nearby solution and, and is it truly end to end? Um, and at what costs, and more importantly, with what trade-offs, and what are those associated trade-off costs? Um, so these are all kind of factors that I think um, you know procurement managers need to be looking at when they are seriously considering um, a nearshoring option. Um, and so that that's just kind of at a at a top level. Got it. Uh, you were just discussing about the different trade-offs, right? So if you were to build a blueprint of sorts for companies to navigate the nearshoring process, how and where do we start, Karim? I'd like to understand the entire framework, right? So right from decoupling existing vendors and suppliers to kind of strengthening ties with newer ones from an entirely different region. Sure. Um, first of all, you have to start with what you currently have. I mean, if you have an already established uh, supply chain. So you really need to analyze, let's call it five main areas, um, costs, uh, timeframes, working relationships, uh, the short, long-term risks, and then obviously any kind of benefits and opportunities. So once you've sort of looked at what you currently have, your current mechanism that you have in place, then you would need to then do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison across these five areas to ensure that, you know, you're truly net gaining from a nearshoring uh, endeavor. Um, also, outside of looking at just those areas of, again, cost, timeframes, working relationship, risks, and benefits and opportunities, you then need to really see what kind of output you're getting from this potential nearshoring possibility, meaning that you should do some parallel development, uh, do some sampling and prototyping to ensure that the quality and the execution is there, um, as well as some, you know, short test production runs to make sure that the output can be consistent, timely, and, you know, managed properly. Because it's one thing to sort of have a golden sample produced it's a very different thing to then say, you know, make me a couple thousand of these so that I know that you can do it. So when we need to scale to do hundreds of thousands or millions of units, you can you can also do it uh, because we, we do learn a lot when you when you transition away from just prototyping then into certain levels of being on the production line. Um, so I, I do think that these are the key sort of factors that you need to look at in order to truly decouple from your existing vendors and, and looking into new areas um, by doing apples to apples comparisons across some very key areas of um, kind of the working relationship and then doing, as we said before, parallel development, sampling, prototyping. So you know that when you do cut away that it does, it doesn't look good on paper, but you actually have a reality to what you're cutting away to and that it matches to the needs of your company, the quality and so on and so forth. Makes sense. And Considering just you mentioned a lot of different metrics, right? It just is a bit more complicated for companies that are, you know, let's say an SME company. So 
if a company is looking to diversify or nearshore their sourcing, how do they look to work through all the different local regulations and related compliance needs that come with this process? Again, like I understand, bigger companies do have the means to build compliance teams in-house, but the SMEs that don't really have the resources might find it tough, I believe. Correct. Um, I think the key here is is to have proper research. Um, but if a company doesn't have those those resources in-house, such as you know either the financial capital to do so or the human capital, um, or employees that could facilitate this, then it's very critical to hire third parties. Um, this could come by way of third-party research or a supply chain solutions company such as ours at the Atlas Network, um, or even attorneys, you know, local attorneys that can give some level of guidance to, to the procurement teams um, in the similar industry and could provide an outlook and a perspective. So uh, that would be... I think the key here, knowledge is power. And the only way that you can really make an informed decision is to have kind of all of the, uh, all of the aspects of the, of the solution in front of you. And that includes local regulations, compliance, so forth. And so again, you know, research and knowledge, whether it's uh, generated internally or through external resources, I think is extremely critical when you're making such a decision. Totally. So how hard is it for managers to convince their top management on changes to their sourcing patterns? I'm asking this because most businesses have this their processes set in a way where commands um, flow top down rather than bottom up, right? But then I guess the sourcing and procurement managers are the ones who know better, especially when it comes to market dynamics and supplier reliability. So how do we bridge this information gap, Karim? Well, I mean, I think that a manager who has an interest in, in kind of these sorts of transitions is going to have to build the proper business case, right, where they outline all the different risks and benefits and, and then if it appears that there is a viable opportunity, and as I mentioned before, you need to do a sampling and prototyping process to ensure that you have supplier reliability. Uh, you know, you must do trial runs. It's very important. Um, visit the suppliers, speak with other customers that this supplier has potentially worked with. So do some levels of attestation and verification to truly bridge sort of the gap um, as we, as you know, as much as possible. So this comes with doing really the legwork um, to then be able to build the business case and then outline that completely. Um, so so that, that I think would be the key here to really kind of bridge this gap in knowledge. Got it. So while we discussed negative impacts like trade tariffs and the lack of ease of doing business, which can push companies to source in different markets. What are what are your thoughts on positive um, trade policy or scenario changes that impact companies? Uh, for instance, let's take the recent decree from the Mexican government that cut taxes by over 60% for 
several key industries like semiconductor or battery or automobile to you know set their manufacturing bases in the country so what are your thoughts there i mean my thoughts i think this is a very very good question meaning do people make a shift or a change because of bad news or really because of good news right what really pushes the company to make to make a decision and in my opinion and my years of working um you know, in this, in this industry, it's always been the bad news that really pushes people to make a change, um, and, and kind of moves the needle in a way, uh, where their supply chain is significantly disrupted. Um, because when the supply chain is disrupted in a, in a very significant way where business cannot be further conducted, then it's an absolute, uh, scenario that a company has to look at options and possibilities because they can't get their products, they can't do their business the way they need to. So, although um, you know economic spurring activities done by different nations or governments, things like that, will be helpful to spur potential new business to a region. I think that when it really comes to specifically supply chain. It's really with the negative side or the nightmare stories that customers start looking for way, you know, new ways to sort of kind of skin the cat or new ways to basically um, do their business. Um, because supply chains are very, very hard to build and to manage and to develop trust through. Um, and so in this way, you know, it's not common to really kind of fully transition your supply chains um, just because there are some tax breaks or things of that nature, um, unless it's a very simple type of product um, that's being produced. Um, so it's usually, again, in really more negative news and, and major problems within an industry that or within a government or a country that that has people making such moves. That's an interesting point, which I was also thinking about, Kerem. For instance, even with Mexico, right? So when you compare Mexico as a country versus China as a country, China has a lot more going in its favor, right? So it has obviously better infrastructure, has more skilled labor, probably has more capital available, um, has massive ports, which, you know, Mexico cannot hold a candle to. So... When we compare sourcing based on suppliers versus comparing sourcing as a destination in itself, do you see that companies are tilting in favor of regions or are they trying to zero in on suppliers first and they don't really think of the bigger macroeconomic factors that determine a region? Yeah, I don't necessarily think it's so much about region. I think it's more about the end product, the, the outcome. Um, is is really the key here, and back to those um, original discussion points that we talked about, such as costs and timelines and working relationships, and you know risks are part of that, as well as benefits are part of that. But you know it, it, it's it has to be looked at as an entire picture, and so when you're when you're looking at the idea of not producing whatever product you're producing in your own factory or in your own managed resource, then the world becomes an option. The entire world becomes an option to you. And that could be the, the, the you know, supplier that's down the street who costs you 10 times too much and isn't efficient and only gives you one half of the equation you really need 
to a group that's all the way on the other side of the planet that will bend over backwards to do anything you need it done. The costs look good. They're at the highest levels of technology and they're going to be delivered, you know, uh, months and months in advance of even a group that's down the street. Um, and so, you know, in this way, it, it's not, it ends up not so much being about the, the location. It ends up being about the end result and how that end result is going to make that business most successful. And we've always been that, you know, here at the Atlas Network, we've always been outcome driven. We've always said if the best solution in the world is in, you know, the United States, it's in the United States. If it's in Mexico, it's Mexico. If it's in China, it's China. And sometimes certain products are, are much better made in particular regions of the world rather than others because they have the technical skill or they have the natural resources available or whatever it may be. But in the end of the day, I think when it comes to developing the most effective supply chains, you need to really be looking at the holistic picture um, and, and, and balancing all those various factors to get the best outcome. And that should be agnostic as to the region, if, if it can be. Wonderful. I think this kind of segs into my next question, which was about quality control, right? So again, like you were mentioning, quality control is kind of an integral part of sourcing. And that probably is what pushes companies to source from a specific supplier or vendor. But when companies are finding new suppliers or vendors from a different part of the world, it can be tricky to ensure quality continues to remain at the same level. Now, how can companies work through this? And considering this is kind of your specialty at Atlas, it'll be great if you could tell our listeners on how you help your clients through this process. Absolutely. Um, so our process for almost 20 years has remained the same kind of three pillars of business that we facilitate in order to ensure good quality outcomes. And they go as follows. The first step is supplier selection, supplier vetting, right? So we here look at um, suppliers in terms of both um, quantitative and qualitative factors. And we sort of rank suppliers um, in this order, suppliers that we work with. We have a network of almost 2,000 suppliers um, in our network. That is where the name Atlas Network comes from, um, our supplier network. Uh, and, and what we're looking at is we're looking at on the quantitative side, things like years in business, uh, number of uh, employees, percentage of exports to other countries, um, just a whole bunch of different kind of metrics around the business on the qualitative side is going to be things like professionalism and timeliness and, uh, you know, reliability and, and things of that nature. So the first step is picking kind of the right supplier that gets you, you know, 70, 80, maybe even 90 percent of the way there. Then the next layer that we have in terms of kind of quality control and visibility is um, on-site visibility. So having resources, in, in our case, our own, um, you know, QC technicians and engineers that go to the factories that are there on the production line, ensuring that things are coming out the way that they should, 
Um, so on, on-site visibility is very, very critical. And then we then add an additional layer outside of that, which is then third-party attestation, uh, where we then also send in a group such as uh, VTrust or Bureau Veritas or another kind of QC audit firm to go in unbiased to the entire project, you know, having no knowledge other than basically the fact that they are experts in that area of production, to then also review the production and, and kick the tires and, and ensure that I's are dotted and T's are crossed. So having this mechanism of you know, picking a good supplier at the beginning that has their credentials and ISO ratings and has you know, good quantitative and qualitative factors, then having on-site visibility to ensure that the production is moving ahead and on schedule and according to plan, and then third-party attestation as well to just kind of, you know, add an additional rubber stamp or cherry on the top. This mechanism is what we do here at Atlas to make sure that we have good outcomes that are efficient and um, and are effective for our customers. And, and if a customer was to do that on their own, they would have to do a very similar sort of a process, you know, where they would have to, you know, pick good suppliers according to not just, you know, some good looking pictures or details, but really delve into the details of the supplier their mechanism, years in business, how they operate, what they do, who are their customers, then, you know, probably do a visit, you know, go visit the supplier, especially when their productions are on the line. And then definitely have, again, the third party attestation to just go in for the times that that the customer can't be there on site to see what's happening. And this is usually, you know, when the productions are almost done and previous to shipment and things of that nature. So that would be the mechanism here to control quality and and ensure that you get a good outcome. Great. That was pretty comprehensive, Karim. So yes, we've discussed about quality control and all this is stuff that companies can control to a certain degree, right? But Mm -hmm. I want to also discuss about navigating black swan events, right? Like for instance, the current Red Sea crisis. So obviously things were are going in a way that was not supposed to go. And that means that lead times are lengthened, freight prices are likely to keep high for a while. And considering freight bidding and the contract season was probably at the end of last year, how do managers, be it procurement managers working with the freight managers within the company, how do they justify and change strategies around holding the right amount of inventories during such situations, like situations that they cannot actually, you know, forecast? I think that this is a very good question and very um, timely and important. Uh, What I would tell you is, is that it's a fine balance, you know, between being actively prepared and then just stockpiling goods unnecessarily. Um, But and, and it really comes down to, again, product to product, meaning if you have products that have a significant time horizon for manufacturing, uh, then add on top of that, you know, significant freight costs and add on top of that um, significant transit times. These are scenarios where it may make sense for you to produce more product than you actually need, given the fact that you're you're working in the international markets and anything and everything can happen and does happen, right? But if you have something that's a bit more easy and more accessible to, to gain access to, um, and the time horizons are quite short, and you know the, 
the cost margins aren't enough to support, let's say, additional storage fees or stockpiling and things of that nature, then you may want to be able to not necessarily overbuy or overstock goods. So, you know, the, the answer to this, again, really is not so much about the global crises at hand, but it's more about what the products are that we're producing and understanding that anytime you're doing something in global supply chain, there is always the risk that something is not going to go the way it needs to perfectly. And with that in mind, how does your product support such risks and challenges or obstacles? And then developing the appropriate strategy to mitigate that, meaning, okay, we know it takes a long time to make these goods. We know it takes a long time to get them here. So we shouldn't be buying in six-month increments. We need to be buying in year-long increments or the opposite. Our products get produced in two weeks. We get them here in you know a couple of weeks. And we, we don't need them for this long. So therefore, we can afford to not necessarily stockpile. So these are the kind of decisions, and they really do happen sort of product to product. Absolutely. I guess that was also kind of the hard debate that we had at the height of the pandemic where people were on two different camps, right? Like I remember people talking about just in case versus just in time. And, you know, the the entire discussion was around how do you manage your inventories in a way that you don't stockpile a lot and at the same time you don't have stockouts, right? So Ultimately, I think, Karen, that companies are looking to ensure that their supply chains stay resilient against such supply shocks and even demand volatility, right? So what are some of the do's and don'ts for companies to ensure that there are no hiccups while maintaining the existing status quo of inventory management, um, especially while they're in the transition phase of reshoring or diversifying the supply chain? I believe a company needs to do an effective supply chain mapping um, where they look at their products, their SKUs that they have, and they actively look to, uh, to consider particular aspects of those products in terms of uh, ordering, uh, reordering, um, development times, um, let's say low, medium, and uh, high case scenarios regarding transit and shipping, um, and really basically build out what they believe are best case and worst case scenarios given their existing supply chain for um, delivery, acceptance, uh, sell through, and then obviously reordering. Um, if they do this, then they're prepared for the different types of outcomes that, that may come their way um, based upon global events and, and, and so forth. So this is, that's really more on the do's. So it's looking at what you currently have, mapping out sort of best and worst case scenarios and really being prepared for that. What you don't want to do is just assume that everything will be status quo. What you don't want to do is assume that every production is going to be perfect after your first one. Um, as a matter of fact, what we do here in terms of educating our own teams and everyone that works with us and customers is we always say that each production is the first production. 
we have a philosophy here that regardless of how many times you've done a, a production in the past, um, that each time is different. There's environmental differences. There could be different people on the production line. There could be different people working at the freight forwarder now. There could be uh, different QC inspectors. Every single production is the first time. I think that what ends up happening and is a big sort of pitfall or mistake for many small to mid-sized businesses is they say, hey, you know what? We've ordered this you know, once or twice and it's always been fine. So why shouldn't the third, fourth, fifth, sixth time be fine? And then and then the ball gets dropped and the stones don't get turned over properly. And then you end up having, uh, you know, mass production becomes mass disaster. Um, and, and it ends up being a, a situation where you have to scramble to fix something or, or possibly even, you know, completely break down your supply chain or your business and, and maybe even go out of business. I've seen that happen where, you know, uh, customers you know, manage something on their own. They didn't have enough resources. They had one good production and then they had one or two that, that went sideways. They didn't have recourse. They didn't have management. They didn't have oversight and they couldn't support it. They couldn't support the failure. Um, so that's what I would say. So you always sort of hope for the best, but prepare for the worst when it comes to global supply chain. And if you do that, then you can weather storms and, and those storms do come. Uh, that's not meant to be a scary comment. It's just a realistic comment. There are too many um, working parts and moving parts to uh, assume that everything is going to be completely streamlined uh, every time. I really like the line you mentioned, um, each production is the first production. I mean, familiarity breeds contempt, and that could be very dangerous in an industry like supply chain, where we have a variety of supply volatilities happening at any moment. Um, so thank you so much for all the wonderful insights in this conversation, Kerim. Appreciate you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for truly having me. Um, it's a great, uh, great show, a great opportunity. Your questions were um, very on point and what is current today in the industry. Uh, so again, I can't thank you enough for having us and uh, look forward to more discussion and dialogue together. Thank you so much. Thank you again. This wraps up another episode of the In Transit podcast. To learn more or to hear previous episodes, check out our website at scmr.com slash podcast slash all or check the podcast segment on the logisticsreport.com. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.